The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. God's Word? Ready? Ready for God's Word? Here we go. It's really, I was thinking about this this morning, it's really ridiculous what can be accomplished when, when God's people believe. It's ridiculous. It really just take it out of the realm of faith even, and just when people believe they can do something, they can accomplish really amazing things. I was reading again this week about, you know, these are like three times a year this happens, where there's a fire in some multi-leveled structure, and some mother's on a balcony and tosses her baby off the balcony, and someone at the bottom catches the baby. You've heard these stories before? I mean, I just quickly looked online and found like four of these stories from the last six months. Now, what, like, what makes, nobody practices catching babies from multi-leveled buildings. Nobody practices this. No one actually knows whether they can do this. And yet, when the situation is there, the person down on the ground, uh, whom the mother is yelling at, that person literally, I can catch this baby. And I go like, on the basis of what do you believe that you can catch this baby? They believe. And in the moment, Something, and this is where our, our series is going, in that moment, the person does something heroic because they believe they could. Heroes are undaunted by circumstances. They're undaunted by what they can actually see. Heroes are, in essence, people of faith. Rahab, who we're looking at today, was such a person. And it really is unlikely to us that a Canaanite woman who was not part of the children of Israel, not part of God's special covenant people, and on top of that, she was a prostitute. It's very unlikely that she would exercise genuine saving faith in the God of Israel. And it's it's exactly what happened to her. This pagan worshiper became a hero, a someone, we've defined a hero, someone in whom God was at work. Recognizing, of course, that he's the hero of every story. She was not only an everyday hero, but an unlikely one who was faith-filled. Now, the reality is, because she was who she was, so ordinary, so unlikely... The potential exists for every person in this room to live a life that is just as faith-filled and accomplish things, as Rahab did, that are so ridiculous and remarkable. The potential exists for every person in this room to leave the kind of legacy that she left behind. So that's what we're going to look at today. Various passages, a couple in Joshua, uh, three passages from the New Testament is where we're going to be today. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started right at it. Father, uh, bless these moments uh, that we have together to hear your word right now. Uh, Father, see beyond the messenger to the life-giving message of Christ. Father, may your spirit challenge our inner objections. Father, may your spirit heal our woundedness. God, may your spirit overcome our ignorance. Teach us today. 
May we hear from you in these moments, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right, when you're faith-filled, first of all, let's start with this. When you're faith-filled, you accept the crisis as coming from the Lord. Whatever the crisis is in your life, we're going to see it in Rahab's life. Whatever the crisis is, you're going to accept it as coming uh, from the Lord. The other way of saying this is, uh, you got to see the things that are happening in your life as God's attempt to get your attention. I hope you see it that way. And I would say that Rahab's situation was certainly extreme. Let me recap the history of this because some of us may not know exactly what's been going on. Uh, But the children of Israel had spent some 400 years in Egypt. Um, A good portion of that time they had spent as slaves uh, to the Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, Moses is raised up as a leader and leads the people out. Uh, They spend 40 years because of disobedience to the Lord. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Uh, But the time had come for them to go to the promised land and occupy Canaan, which would later, uh, of course, be known as Israel. Uh, They're on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses dies and the new Moses, the new leader of Israel is a man named Joshua. He's going to be a man of conquest. He's going to lead the people over the Jordan River and into the land to seize uh, the land. First stop. The first city in their path is a city that's just over the Jordan, a city by the name of Jericho, one of the oldest cities um, in all of human history. And uh, Jericho is there, standing as this obstacle between the children of Israel and their conquest, this walled city that must be conquered. Let me read that, uh, what's going on here. We're in Joshua uh, chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, the brilliance of that, by the way, we shouldn't think anything untoward of that situation. The uncomfortable truth is this, that no one would have thought anything of two foreign men going into the house of a prostitute. It was the perfect cover. Lots of men coming and going from that place. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men that have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but... I did not know where they were from, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. True or false? She's lying. She's lying to them here. We'll come back to that. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, and she uses the personal name of God, Yahweh here. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That was 40 years before. Before you, when you came out of Egypt and that you did what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. That's their crisis. 
They have an enemy camped at the gates, ready to take them over. And every single king who stood in their way has melted in fear before the children of Israel. Now they're having a a crisis as a city-state because they know they're going to be invaded. But could we also see here that Rahab is having a personal crisis, probably one that was ongoing in her life. I mean, it's so easy for us to pass over the detail of, oh, she was a prostitute. What What an awful woman she was. What a terrible choice she made for her life. Can we just turn on our compassion switches for a minute here and just say that there's probably not a single prostitute in the city of Toronto or the city of Barrie who's chosen to be a prostitute? That situations drive people into those lifestyle choices and they feel kind of cornered and had to make that choice? Could we not be as Jesus right now and have compassion for this woman that her life situation was horrific? That though she was forced, she was so forced into that situation and then having been forced into it, what happens? All the women in her life hate her because of her choice. And all of the men in her life exploit her. I mean, what we ought to have is the mind of Christ and his heart right now towards this woman and say, I mean, she's having a crisis anyways. And now on top of that, the whole city is in crisis over these, these Jewish people that are about to invade Yet she says this in verse 9. I know. I know that the Lord has given you the land. The fear of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants melt away. Our hearts melted. There's no spirit left in us. This is the crisis. We have, and I, I love the first line of the Beatitudes that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5. Where he just, he, he says, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. The necessary starting point for hearing the Sermon on the Mount is that we have come to the end of ourselves. There is nothing left in us. And any of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ know that at the moment we came to faith in Christ, there needed to be an emptying of self. I no longer have it in me. I need Jesus. That's the point that she's at. That's the point that Jericho is at. God uses crises in our lives to get our attention and to draw us to himself in relationship. Whatever the life crisis is for you, I've I've heard them all. Cancer drives many people to consider faith in Christ. An accident and, and the trauma that comes out of that, the death of a loved one, job loss, relationship breakup, financial pressure. These are all the kinds of things that God uses to push us into a relationship with himself. For me, I've told you this story before. When I was 13 years old, my parents brought me to the horrible province of Ontario. I'm a Quebecer, born and bred, a Montrealer, once a Montrealer, always a Montrealer. And I've had to live in exile in Ontario for more than three decades now. (laughs) Kidding aside. Listen, at at 13 years old, when you can move away from everybody you love and know, your way of doing things, a different school system here and everything, that was the crisis that God used. I I just came to the end of myself. I I collapsed at school one day in grade A. The doctor diagnosed nervous tension. I'm going into my teen years. I'm a mess anyways, because everybody who's 13 is a mess. (laughs) Trying to figure themselves out. 
And on top of that, I was living in the wrong province, in the wrong place, and my friends were all. And listen, that was the crisis God used. And, and those of you who are the followers of Christ right now, you made that decision. There was a point in time that you had a crisis and you considered Jesus Christ and you chose to follow him. That's where Rahab was at. She saw the threat to her safety, the crisis. She seized it to give her life to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of the Israelites. Now, in the midst of the crisis, you have to see this. She's accepting the crisis that's coming from the Lord. She's taking the very first steps of faith. Now, here's something that I know about the first steps of faith. They are never perfect. And and for me, again, a little personal testimony here. But after I became a follower of Christ, I had my struggles with things like alcohol and drugs. Those came after. The first steps of faith are never perfect. And Rahab's first steps of faith are not perfect. She struggles here. And there's a great little discussion that goes on around the ethics of what Rahab does to protect the spies. What we see in verses 3 through 7, which we just read, this has troubled a people, believers for centuries, as they wrestled with it because they know, later on we're going to look at two verses in the New Testament, that commend her faith. The New Testament essentially says, Rahab's awesome. Rahab lived out her faith. She was a person of action. And yet, knowing the whole story, you wrestle. How does the New Testament affirm someone who kind of did something that when you first look at it, looks looks wrong? Commended for her faith, but is her method, the lie, vindicated? Now, how many of you, I really wrestled whether or not to do this, but we're going to do it. Uh, How many people took an ethics course in either high school, college, university, something like that? You took an ethics course. Okay, for, for some of you, this will be your first ethics course. For others of you, it'll be a bad nightmare. Revisit it, okay? Um, unless you really liked ethics, um, this is going to be horrible for you. All right, Rahab's dilemma. Let's just call it that. There's five different ways to look at the lies she told. All right, you ready for this? Whether or not you are ready, we're going to do it. Rahab's dilemma. Ethic one is tell the truth. And I think this is where a lot of Christians would just fall, that we would just say, why didn't she just tell the truth and then let God work a miracle? Like, like she says, yeah, the spies are here. And the minute the two soldiers walk through the door, the ground opens up and they get swallowed. All right. God's done that kind of thing before. Or they walk in the door and they go, oh, good. We want to defect. Maybe we could go with the spies and help them. Or something miraculous happens that doesn't happen in this story because she didn't tell the truth. Uh, Does the lie demonstrate, in other words, a lack of faith? She should have told the truth. That's ethic one. And in that way, God gets the maximum glory. Ethic two is don't lie, but don't volunteer information. Okay, so you don't answer questions. Uh, She could have not lied, nor told the whole truth. Um, She could have said, um, yeah, 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 they're here. Just come come on in, take a look around, whatever. Or she could have said, or look for yourself. Uh, She didn't have to say they're here. Just come on in, look around. And they would go, yeah, yeah, Rahab, we know they're not here. We're not going to take the time. Um, You're too free with inviting us in. And you kind of just not offer all the information. And you hope, again, that the Lord conceals the spies from their eyes. That's ethic two. 
Ethic three is this, do the greater good. Um, She lied, but she was choosing between two goods. A good number one is, I'm a resident and a citizen of Jericho. I have a king. These are soldiers of the realm that I belong to. Uh, One of the goods is that I obey the government and do what the government has said I should do. But there's another good here. I know that these spies are representing God. And if I turn them over, they're going to end up dead. And so the greater good here is I'm going to protect the spies so that they don't die. I weigh out the two options. I determine which one is the best one. And when I determine that, because God knows that we're in an ethical dilemma, God doesn't count it as sin against us. It's not, in other words, the greater good ethic is, it's not sin if I choose the greater good. Now, love this story. How many people know the story? I just want to illustrate this one for a second. How many people know the story of Corrie ten Boom? You know this story? And what are we supposed to say when, when the Dutch win in the World Cup? What's that? That's it. There you go. I knew there were a few of you around. All right. So this is a Dutch family. World War II. The Nazis invade. And uh, Corrie ten Boom was a young girl at the time. She and her sister, her dad. And uh, they hid Jews uh, during World War II from the Nazis. Uh, they created a secret room in their house. They had a whole procedure um, that was set up to be able to protect the Jews when the Nazis would come to the door or Nazi sympathizers would come to the door. They would lie. They would lie. There are no Jews here. In fact, they would invite them to come in and look around because they had created this secret room. But they would lie. And in the book, um, The Hiding Place, which uh, if you're looking to add some books to your summer reading and you've never read this book, I would highly recommend it to you. Uh, The book uh, records this. She hated telling lies, but she reasoned surely that was better than allowing people to be murdered. It's the ethic of the greater good. Do you understand it? I'm going to choose to lie because murder is, is just so wrong. And um, that, that ate away at Corey Ten Boom for her entire life that she had to do that. But she was choosing the ethic of the greater good. Ethic four is closely related to it is the ethic of the lesser evil. Essentially exactly the same. She lied. A good resulted uh, because she lied. But she chose the lesser of two evils. Again, we're talking about two very awful things. Uh, She doesn't want the spies to be captured. The difference in this one is, in the ethic of the greater good, the sin is excused and God doesn't count it against us. In this one, the sin is not excused. It is still sin. And though you chose the lesser of the two evils, you still have to repent for the lying. You still with me? Are you glazing over? Still with me? All right. One more. Ethic five. All's fair in war. She was following what are called the rules of warfare, which dictate that deceit is acceptable in combating the enemy who forfeits their right to know the truth. And some of you are going, come on. Rules of warfare, really? Really, there are. And during times of wars between states, it's legitimate to have spies, to conceal, to lie, to deceive in an effort to triumph over your enemies. Israel and the Canaanites are at war. Rahab made her decision to align with Israel. Therefore, her lie is legit based on the rules of war. How do you feel about that one? 
Yeah, you just don't know. Except for the fact that you actually practice this one. Anytime you leave a light on somewhere in your house because you want to make it appear like you're still home when you're not home, you're lying. You're not home. But you believe, okay, forget rules of warfare, unless you believe you're at war with thieves, you believe that the thief forfeits his right to know whether or not you're home. True? Okay, now you like that one a little bit better, don't you? I thought so. By the way, if you go on Facebook and start posting live your pictures from Aruba, okay, people know you're not home, all right? And they can break in anyway, so just, that was free. All right. Five ethics. Here's the problem we have. As the followers of Jesus Christ who love God's word, ready for this now? We know that truth originates in God, Psalm 43, 3. Truth originates in God. We know, uh, John 14, 6, he is truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We know that he cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. We know that his very word is truth, John 17, 7. We know that we need to be like him. We know that lying is condemned in the Ten Commandments, part of the very divine character of our God. Our morality and our holiness hinge on truth. And so when you look at it, when you, when you analyze all of the data, you have to come to the conclusion that the lie is sin. It's a violation of who God is. We can't waver on that. What we find in the scriptures is that they vindicate her, they commend her for saving the spies, but they don't con- con- commend her for the lie. Not the means by which she did it. Now, I love this quote. It kind of sums it all up for us. It was to Rahab's credit. This is uh, David M. Howard Jr. It was to Rahab's credit, however, and to God's that her clear and enduring faith in Israel's God prevailed in the end over her momentary lapse into a lie. As is true for all of the heroes of faith. David lied. Abraham lied. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. I mean... Not exactly a stellar group, but all commended for their faith. And notice this, God judged her ultimately by her enduring faith and not her lie. That's the greatest sentence, isn't it? God commended her for her enduring faith and not her lie. God, God, God's looking at all of us who are, who are recipients of his grace. He's looking at our enduring faith and not our lies, not our cheating, not our gossiping, not our slandering. God's not looking at our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ has erased all of that. And what he sees is our faith. I'm so glad he judged her by faith with all the challenges we face in living our lives in this sin-sickened world in which we find ourselves. God measures our faith. And we're going to cut her some slack. Rahab was a new believer without any teaching in God's ways. She had never even met a Jew, very likely. It's a tough call. It was a tough ethical dilemma for her, but her decision not to her decision to lie demonstrated actually a lack of faith. Our faith must be. In a God who is full of grace and mercy, a powerful God whose plans we have to believe will never be thwarted. 
Accept the crisis is coming from the Lord. See that he's trying to get your attention and draw you into his presence. And then acknowledge your certainty in who he is. I mean, after the tough part of her story, um, she says that the crisis created certainty in her. You can see this affirmation. She was absolutely certain that they were powerless before the Jews. We'd already read those verses. And then she made her personal profession. In this God of the Jews, Yahweh, look at it in verse 11. You might even want to underline these verses. She says this, the latter part of verse 11, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God. There is no other God. She in this one statement is saying, I'm forsaking the gods of the Canaanites. I'm putting this behind me. This is the God that I'm going to follow And I'm going to trust. It's the same for all of us. Crisis. We hear the message. We know what we have to do. And we respond in faith to it. It's the same for every person coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And she makes this profession while living in the midst of a culture that was entirely anti-God of Israel. Hostile toward him and toward his people. I mean, the odds of her, not that this has anything to do with odds or chance, the odds were a billion to one, 10 billion to one, that she would ever hear the message and turn her life over to Yahweh. There was zero believers in this city. We have a hard time believing this because we live in such a diverse society. We live in a society with so many different faith groups and religions and people who are not into that. It's diverse ethnically. It's diverse in every way it can possibly be diverse. And so we have a hard time even realizing that a place like Jericho, everyone worshipped, everyone worshipped the same God. It was completely and entirely homogeneous. And every people group was at the time like that. They maintained the purity of their own culture and faith. And so there are no other believers in this city. It isn't like there was a Jewish synagogue down the road and she used to go there once in a while or talk to an old Jewish guy at the coffee shop. It just didn't happen. Is there any doubt that while we may have a role to play in leading people to faith in Jesus Christ, that it is God who saves? I mean, you read an account like this and you realize there's no one there to teach her. There's no one there to live an example before her. All she knows are the stories that have been told to her as different men have come through her place. And yet she responds. I mean, the only way that that can happen is if salvation really does come as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, in drawing us to himself. It is God who saves. It is God who decided that Rahab would be saved. She was so far outside the realm of anyone who could possibly be saved. Some of you pray faithfully for people in your lives, friends and family members, especially loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ. The books we have over at the, on the table over here to my left are filled with hundreds, thousands of names of people who don't know Jesus Christ. And some of them you're praying for a little bit in faith, but you don't really believe they can be saved. You've lost faith over the years. 
You, you consider their situation to be so desperate. They're so far gone. God, I just don't believe they could be saved. And sometimes you think it entirely depends on you. And you fall into a pattern of believing that you have to do something to get them saved when really it's the Lord who must save them. He's the only one who can. Keep praying. Keep believing. If Rahab can be saved, anyone can be. God draws people to himself. God convicts them through the Holy Spirit and brings new life. And when God does that work in us, we will be certain that he is who he says he is. We will not be able to help but respond to him. We will follow him. And it won't matter because this was the case for Ahab. No one else did. Her family was protected, we'll find. But we don't know that they responded in faith the same way. Rahab followed, though no one else did. I love Jonathan Edwards' word on this. Uh, He made this series of resolutions. His first resolution was this, I will live for God. And resolution two was, if no one else does, I still will. I love the certainty of that, don't you? Do you have that certainty? And if... If you do make that resolution, if you do have that kind of certainty, please understand that, that there's risk attached now to actually following Jesus Christ. But because you have the Spirit of God, you're going to be willing to assume the risk of following Jesus Christ. Rahab knew that her life was on the line for Yahweh. In Joshua 2, verses 12 through 14, look at this with me. Uh, Now then, please swear to me, she's having a conversation with the spies. Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully. Uh, with you. She talks this out with the spies. Her mustard seed sized faith in God was enough to have her count the cost of rejecting her own people, the danger of doing so. Her life was surely on the line for harboring spies. She was willing to count the cost of believing, assume the risk that came with aligning herself with the Jewish people. She would now be considered an enemy of the state simply because of her faith, her actions, by her actions, she was putting her life on the line. That's not really something we have to do here. That's not something that is common for believers in North America. The risk today for you might be that a relationship might not survive your faith in Christ. Not that you turn your back on someone else, but there may be a people in your life who are going to turn their backs on you. Maybe there'll be financial impact, maybe a massive change in priorities for you. There might be some risk attached to following Jesus Christ. Maybe the direction for your life will be entirely altered. But I believe that a day is coming when we right here in North America, I don't believe it's that far down the road, are going to find that as the followers of Jesus Christ, the risk is more real than it ever has been. 
uh, two great countries that occupy this uh, continent celebrated their Independence Day and Canada Day, July 1st and 4th. Two countries that were founded on Christian principles. Two countries that were founded by founding countries that were founded on Christian principles. We've enjoyed the freedoms that our constitutions have uh, provided for us for multiple centuries now. But that day, I believe, is rapidly coming to an end. The day is coming when our moral convictions, where we believe we ought to be living and how we ought to be living our lives concerning matters such as same-sex orientation, marriage, the sanctity of human life, both abortion and euthanasia, will in, those who believe in such things will increasingly find themselves at odds with the governments that they're under. Al Mohler said recently in an article that I read, he's great Christian thinker of this era. He said, we have lost the culture war. We have lost it. That war is over and we are on a steady descent toward a society that is increasingly hostile towards God's word and those who believe it. Those who have been saved for some time and have enjoyed the freedom of religion that our constitutions provide us will soon find themselves Assuming the risk of following Jesus Christ, you will be asked, listen to me, you will be asked to decide. And not everybody in this room will want to. And not everybody in this room is going to make the right decision. Some of us will continue to follow Jesus Christ, we'll assume the risk, and we will face losses. And others will walk away into the world denying Christ. We're going to find out exactly what Jesus meant. We haven't known this. We haven't really truly known this. We're going to find out what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, take up his cross. Jesus' cross, which he took up, led him to Calvary, where he gave his life. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You think you're saving your life? You think you're protecting yourself? You think that by denying Jesus Christ that that's going to go well for you? Yes, you'll save your life in this life. You'll have the rest of your earthly life to live in peace. Jesus says, you're going to lose it eventually. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, this is the gospel, isn't it? It's you lay your life on the line for Jesus Christ. Because he laid his life on the line. Assume the risk of following him. Will you be faith-filled as Rahab was? She put it all on the line. Faith is the only thing that you must have to survive the coming days. Living out our faith will be riskier. Some will melt away at the cost. When that cost becomes real. Assume the risk of following him. Be faith-filled. And if you are, you will act on what you've professed. You've said that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, I believe you're going to act on that no matter the risk, as Rahab did, Joshua 2.15. 
She let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window uh, through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house. Your father, your mother goes on to give the whole plan here. If anyone goes out the doors of the house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, we shall be guiltless. She says in verse 21, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away. They departed and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. She acted on what she had professed. And two New Testament citations. First of all, we know because we studied the book of James now this year already. And we already know that faith apart from works is dead. James taught us that faith. It's not enough to simply profess and say that you believe of faith always produces works. And in Hebrews eleven thirty one, one of the passages about Rahab by faith, Rahab, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The author of Hebrews says that it's her faith that produced the works that welcomed the spies and helped them. James 2.25 says this, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Justified not being saved by works, but justified in that the works proved that her, her faith was genuine. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I believe that Rahab must have had some great sense of her unique position to do something great, something that would assist the Jews, something that would advance God's plan. I wonder, as she knew the stories and as she heard about what the Jews uh, were accomplishing and as they came closer and closer to Jericho, I wonder that she didn't pray to God and say, Yahweh, God of the Jews, hear my prayer and save me. So that on the day when these two spies arrive at her door, she's not at all surprised that God has, has heard and answered her prayer. I mean, by her own testimony, she knew about what God was doing. She acknowledged that he was the true God. She must have seen this as God's intervention. A chance for her to respond. And her act is in the hiding of the spies and then in the hanging of the, of the scarlet cord. And a lot's been made of all of this, and I don't think we need to go uh, too far in this and make this representative in some way of the blood of Christ or the blood of the sacrificial animals in the temple. There's no indication in the Scripture that it really means that. But I am thinking a little bit about the Passover and how on that night in Egypt, as the Jews were escaping, that God instructed them to put the blood on the doorpost of their houses, that the angel of death would pass by any house that had the blood on the doorpost. And but I mean, mostly I'm just looking at this going, hmm, what can we use here that's kind of a bright color? We're going to be able to notice uh, when it's hanging outside the window. Oh, here we got this, you know, this rope here, this scarlet cord that you use to tie back your, your windows. I went to Fabricland this week and bought this. Honestly, I think that's the first time I've ever bought anything at Fabricland. But a, but a red cord would be obvious from the window. 
And so she took it out of obedience, acting on her faith, and hung this so that when the day came when the Jews were coming, they would see that. They would see that act of faith. She had to stay in her house with the, with the invading armies coming, believing only that this single act of faith was enough to save her. The scarlet cord represents obedience. It represents an act of faith on her part. This was her moment to believe, though she couldn't really know what the outcome was. That's faith, the essence of faith. What's God asking you? Because I just believe that God's asking us all to do things. He's asking us all to be obedient. He's asking us all to live for him. What's he asking you to do in your life? What great decision needs to be made? What, what bold venture is he asking you to accomplish for him? What's your scarlet cord? What's the thing that he wants you to obey him in and, and, and hang up as a sign that you truly believe in who he is and what he wants to accomplish. Is, is God asking you to risk something for him? Is God asking you to believe for some promise? Is God asking you to serve him in some way? Is God telling you to walk away from something that's hindering your faith? What's your scarlet cord? What's the point of obedience for you? What's the act of faith? If you're a Christ follower, you've professed faith in Jesus Christ. Then act on that. Act on that faith. Show certainty of who Jesus Christ is. Assume the risk. Make the decision. And act on it. And when you do, so encouraging. You will acquire the benefits of believing. This is over in Joshua chapter 6 now where we kind of have the rest of the account. In verse 25, you can read how 17 through 25 really tells the whole thing. Rahab the prostitute will be saved. She'll be saved out, her, she and her house, anyone who's in her house. Verse 25 simply says, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy in Jericho. She believed, she acted, and God blessed her. She acquired the benefits and the blessings that came from that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, you have the genealogies. And so many of us wonder, what's the deal with the genealogies? And why are they so important? And, uh, and during my Bible reading through the Bible thing, I have to read genealogies. And I don't get why. And in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Rahab's name is there. This Canaanite prostitute who believed God and acted upon her belief, risking everything, is in the line and lineage of King David of Israel and thus of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. She's an ancestor of the Lord. God did that. 
God brought about a generational blessing. Now, there's no doubt that the benefits of believing and following Christ, they're now and they're not yet. She received some benefits right in the right in the moment. She got to now be safe from the destruction of Jericho. That was a benefit. True. That's a benefit. I'm not there when everyone else is dying. That's a benefit. Then she gets to go and live with Israel, who are the conquering people, and live with them for all of her days. Evidently, obviously, she marries a Jewish man. And she has Jewish babies. And down all the generations, one of them is the Messiah. That's awesome. That's God at work in someone who did some heroic things. Immediate benefits, the now benefits, the not yet benefits, they're coming in succeeding generations. And you and I cannot know what the generations to come will experience in terms of God's blessing because of, listen to me now, decisions we're making right now. Some of you will make decisions today. That will impact generations in your family. And you cannot know what your children, your children's children, four generations, five generations from now, what those people will accomplish for the church of Jesus Christ and for the glory of our God. You can't know. I can't know. But God asks us in this moment to make a decision to live by faith. The benefits are immediate and future. They're eternal. Jesus intends in the moment to forgive your sins, to erase the guilt, the fear, and the shame. He wants to do that for you now. He intends to give you peace and joy and flood your life now with his love. And greater blessings await beyond this life. Rahab was a hero because she was faith-filled. She believed that God was at work. She was certain about the Lord. She assumed the risk. She acted on her faith. She received the benefits. And God worked in a powerful, miraculous, and amazing way in her life. That can happen to anyone. Anyone in this room. Rahab's an everyday hero. An unlikely one. Just like we're everyday. And ordinary too. And unlikely to be used by God. Let's pray together. And we're going to worship. Father, thank you so much for... Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for once again how you have spoken to us. And I pray, God, that all over this room, how people would be making decisions uh, to uh, believe you. To believe your word. To act upon it. To not allow anything to hinder that. And God, to see the benefits of what you're offering to us both now in this life, the abundant life that you promise, and then the eternal life that is to come. Father, save those in this room who don't yet know you. The ones who are still in the crisis, I pray that they would see that this crisis is meant in their life to draw their attention to you. I pray that they would see Christ. I pray that they would see the cross of Christ and find forgiveness and enter into that relationship with you. And God, that you would do a powerful work in their life of forgiveness. Give them peace. Father, work in all of our lives, I pray, 
now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.